getting something off of my chest. I want to lay something out for you guys. Um, I'm in a room filled with Philadelphians, and so I'm trusting that I can be honest with you guys, right? Um, now, before I say anything, I just want you to know that I'm one of you. I'm one of you. I was born in Philadelphia. I was raised in Philadelphia. I honestly couldn't imagine living anywhere else in this world. I love this city. So I'm not the enemy, okay? I just want you to know that. I want you to know that before I say what I'm about to say. I am not the enemy, okay? So here goes. When it comes to sports, Philadelphia fans are some of the biggest jerks in the world, okay? We're some of the biggest jerks that there are in the world. I know that we usually defend ourselves by saying things like, you know what, we're just really passionate or we're just more knowledgeable than the other fans all around this world, but when we boil it down, we're just a bunch of jerks. Again, I'm one of you, so I need you to hear me out, okay? Here's why I think we're jerks. Because any, on any given day, on any given day, a player could be given a standing ovation and be cursed out at the same game. <laughs> right? Is it not true? I mean, I've seen it with my own eyes. Sharon and I were at game five of the NLDS last year, uh, where the Phillies were playing the Cardinals, okay? It was a great game in the beginning. Ryan Howard, uh, arguably one of the best players on the Philadelphia Phillies, um, comes up to the plate for the final play of the game. I don't know if you remember this game or not, but the score was one nothing. okay? So it wasn't much of an offensive game that, that day, but the score was one nothing, and Ryan Howard had the opportunity to bring it home for us to win the game that day. Now, up until that point, up until that point where he stepped into the plate, Ryan Howard had a team high of 33 home runs. He hit 116 RBIs that season. He helped our team to win 102 games that season. Ryan Howard was one of the best players, not just on the Phillies, but in the entire major league. He's amazing, he's a great player. But for that last play, I saw Ryan Howard step up to the plate. And he squared up in the, in the usual way that he does. And he saw that pitch coming towards him. He swings and he hits the ball. That ball travels about six, maybe seven feet and hits the ground, right? Ryan Howard runs maybe six, seven feet and also hits the ground and he tears his Achilles, okay? Ryan Howard ends his season and he finishes the Philly season by hitting the ball six feet and falling to the ground by tearing his Achilles. And do you know what we did in that stadium that day? Do you know what I did in that stadium that day? I booed him. I booed him. This man was lying on the floor with a torn Achilles in major pain, and my first reaction was to boo. I booed him. I was more generous than others that were around me. I just booed. Others had more things to say. We are a bunch of jerks. And that night was a great reminder to me that as Philadelphia sports fans, the amount of affection that we have for any player in our city 
is based solely on how they're performing at any given moment in, on that day, in that game. You see, when they're hitting home runs, we love them. We'll cheer for them, we'll give them a standing ovation. But when they tear their Achilles, we'll boo them. We'll curse them out. But here's the thing, right? It's not just Philadelphia, and it's not just Philadelphia fans that do this. It's the entire world, right? From the moment that we're born, we're taught that our performance determines our worth. We're taught that our performance determines our worth. I mean, it begins as early as recess, right? Some of us may remember the feeling of standing out in the playground when they're about to play a game and feeling the, the fear and the shame of being picked last because everyone that's around you knows that you really just don't have any skills. Some of us remember that. Some of us know the feeling of, of being ashamed to tell someone that you haven't finished high school or you didn't go to that top name college, you went to some no-name college and got a degree that maybe isn't worth much. Or maybe some of you know what it feels like to feel anxious at work because you know that your coworkers are much more qualified than you. And not only do you know that, everyone there knows that as well. And you spend your time worrying what they feel about you, how they think about you. We're constantly taught that our worth is determined by how well we do something. It's the way that the world works. But you see, it's not even just sports or recess or school or work where we begin to think that way. It's also how we see God and our approach and our approach our relationship with Him as well. All sorts of religions in the world teach us that our worth is based on our performance, that our relationship with God is based on our performance. Such religions teach that God's approval or disapproval of you is based on how well you perform. So for example, Islam, right? Islam teaches that in order for you to reach paradise or to get into heaven, you just have to make sure that your good works outweigh your bad works. Or Hinduism. Hinduism teaches that in order for you to break this, this cycle of reincarnation, of birth and death and rebirth, you have to make sure that your good works outweigh your bad works, so that you would be broken free of this cycle and experience heaven or moksha instead. And there are even churches that exist that have leaders who have taught things like what saves someone is actually how good your spiritual resume looks, right? Sure, Jesus is important, but at the end of the day, what really matters is how well you are doing, how well you are performing. We live in a performance-driven world, and it has even dictated the way that we understand God. But this is the thing, right? The Bible says something completely different than what the world says. The Bible says that if we're, if we're counting on our performance to save us or to give us worth or to give us identity, we might as well just give up right now. The Bible teaches something that is wholly different than what the world teaches. It says, unlike the world, the Bible teaches that God is gracious. God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves. God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves. See, this morning, we're finishing off a series that began a few weeks ago called Life in 4G. 
And each week we've been introduced to a, a characteristic of God, and we've been considering how that characteristic should affect the way that we live. So for the first week, Pastor Jay talked to us about how God is great. And if God is great, we don't have to be in control, right? He taught us that the same God who spoke the world into existence, right, that created all that we see, that filled the earth with water, that put every single star up in the sky, is also the God who has control over every single aspect of your life. That if God is able to create and to sustain all that exists in this universe, then he can surely control and sustain our simple lives. So when I and you live in anxiety and in fear, it's because I don't really believe that God is in control of everything, including my life. And then the next week, Sidney spoke to us on how God is glorious, so we don't have to fear others. He taught us that God is glorious, and he's holy, and he's powerful, and sinless. And if all of those things are true, then God's opinion of us is of greatest worth. What he thinks of us is what really matters. At the end of the day, more than what your boss thinks of you, what God thinks of you is what really matters. And when we look at the scriptures, we see a God who is actually for us. He's so for us that he sent his son to die on our behalf so that we can actually stand before God, not having to fear him. So when I and you live in fear of others, it's because I don't believe that God is more glorious than the people that I do fear. Right? And then last week, we heard from Joe, and he preached to us, and he reminded us that God is good, so we don't have to look elsewhere. God is good, so we don't have to look elsewhere. That in God, we have found our greatest treasure. That God alone is able to satisfy us in a way that no one else or nothing else in this world is able to. But we so quickly turn away from this satisfaction that we find in God, and we look to lesser things. You and I look to things like wealth, or sex, or power, or approval from people to satisfy this quench that we have within us. And we do that because in reality, we cherish and we love our idols, these fake gods, more than the real God. We really don't believe that God is truly good enough. And so this week, we're considering the fourth G in this series, uh, the final characteristics in this, uh, of God that we're talking about in the series, God's graciousness. And we're saying this morning, God is gracious, so I don't need to prove myself. God is gracious, so I don't need to prove myself. And it's important for us to know right off the bat that every sermon in this series has been based off of the premise that at the heart of every sin is unbelief, right? At the heart of why we sin is because we don't believe something about who God is and what he has done. So in other words, our reason, our desire to want to prove ourselves to other people isn't just because we live in a world where we're taught that way or a culture that teaches us to think that way. It's actually because we don't believe that God is gracious. So that's our hope for this morning. We want to consider the grace of God in a different way that would cause us to live free from this life of performance. So let's actually pray and ask God to do that. Father, I'm asking that you would open up your word to us this morning. We know that your word is powerful. 
Your word is powerful because it is your word. Your word is powerful because it gives us a glimpse of who you are. And your word tells us that when we encounter you, that we have no choice but to walk away transformed. And so I'm praying this morning that more than me speaking, I'm praying that you would speak, that you would remind us of what it is that you have said in your word, that you would show us these truths, and that we would be able to walk away changed and transformed. Please hear our prayer. Amen. So this morning, we're going to take a look at Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to look specifically at verses 8 to 10, and we're going to consider the grace of God. But before we do that, I just want to take a moment to define what we mean by grace, right? So if you've been in church or if you've grown up in a church uh, context, you've probably heard the word a bunch of times and you've probably heard it defined a bunch of different ways. But, you know, some have defined grace as a gift, right? Grace is a gift. And we would say, absolutely, grace is a gift. And others have gotten more fancy and they said some things like, grace is unmerited favor, right? And we would say, absolutely. Grace is unmerited or undeserved favor. And some have even gotten creative with grace, and they've made an acronym out of it, right? So they said G-R-A-C-E is God's riches at Christ's expense. And we say, that's great, that's cute, that's really good. Um, but we would say for this morning, it's easy enough for us to remember that grace is getting what you don't deserve. Grace can be defined as getting what you don't deserve. Because if mercy is not getting what you do deserve, hear that again, if mercy is not getting what you do deserve, then grace is getting what you don't deserve, right? So for example, if I were to walk down these steps right now and I would walk over to Dennis, right? And if I were to punch Dennis in the face, because I can take Dennis, I don't think, <laughs> He doesn't know that, but I can take him. Maybe not Daniel, but Dennis I can definitely take. Right? So if I were to walk down these steps and walk up to Dennis and punch him in the face, what do I deserve? To be punched back. Right? Absolutely. No one would see him punching me back and say, why did you do that? They would all say, absolutely, he deserves to get punched back. Now, if Dennis decided that he wasn't going to punch me back, he would be showing me mercy. Right? But what if he decided that he was going to respond to my aggressive attack of him by giving me this high-paying job and a great view of the city at the Comcast building where he works? That would be showing me grace, right? That would be showing me grace because it would be giving me what I don't deserve. It would be giving me nothing short of a gift. He would be showing me unmerited or undeserved favor. That's grace. It's getting what you don't deserve. So with that in mind, I want us to read Ephesians. So open with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Looking specifically at verse 8 and 9. Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. So Paul... Paul is this apostle of Jesus Christ, and he's writing this letter to a church in a place called Ephesus. And he's saying this to these people. He's saying, listen, when God saves someone, when God saves someone, they are absolutely getting what they don't deserve. 
When God saves someone, they are absolutely getting what they don't deserve. In fact, he sort of goes out of his way to remind us that we had nothing to do with our salvation. So in verse 8, he says, this is not your doing. He says, your salvation, your salvation is not your doing. And then in verse 9, just seven words later, he says it again, almost like just in case we forgot, right? He says, not a result of works, that your salvation is not a result of your works. So the question we need to be asking ourselves is, why is Paul being so adamant here, right? Why is Paul being so adamant? Why is he drilling this into our brain? Because God's decision to save, save someone is as illogical as Dennis deciding to give me a high-paying job in, in, the, center, uh, in the, center, the center city at Comcast in, in response to me punching him in the face, right? God's decision to save us is illogical. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense because it's not the, the logical response we expect from him. But here's the thing. My offense against God is actually infinitely worse than what I would do to Dennis, right? Take a look at what I mean. Just a few verses earlier, in the beginning of chapter 2, listen to what Paul says. Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of the world. What's Paul saying? He's saying our sin and trespasses made us dead towards God. It made us dead in our relationship towards God, but alive and well when it comes to our relationship to sin. We're dead before God in our sin and trespasses, but alive and well when it comes to our relationship with sin. And Paul says, that we were followers of the devil. Seems pretty harsh, but this is what the word says, that we were followers of the prince of the power of the air, and that we saw him as our master. He said that we lived to satisfy our own desires, that we looked to be satisfied in God, that we only cared about fulfilling our own desires, that we could care less about what God's desires are for us. Now, if we were to look at these collection of statements, this idea of being dead towards God and alive and well when it comes to sin, or if we were to look at this idea of being followers of Satan, or not finding pleasure in God and having no desire for him, those statements don't sound like someone who deserves to be saved, right? No one hears that statement and says, that sounds like a good guy. You know what? God deserves to save him. No one says that. And that's the tension that exists, right? If God really is who he says he is, that if he is sinless and holy, and sinful people can't be in his presence, then what hope do we have? Honestly speaking, what hope do we have? Because Paul's not just talking to this church in Ephesus. He's saying that this is the, the character of all of us. This describes all of us. That we are those things, that we're dead to God and alive and well to sin, that we follow the, the prince of the power of the air. And if those things are true, what hope do we have? The truth is, 
we have no hope. We would have none. And we would have no choice but to agree with Paul that we do deserve God's wrath. That we deserve to be in hell, separated from God forever. Because God created the world. The world. He sets the rules and the boundaries, and he says what's right and what not, what's not. And we don't have the right to say otherwise. And when he says these things, like, sinful people can't be in my presence, who are we to fight with him? What hope do we have? We would be hopeless. And that's exactly what makes God's response to your sin and to my sin incredible. Listen to what Paul says in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Paul saying that though we were dead towards God and deserving of his wrath, he doesn't treat us according to our sins. God doesn't treat us as our sin deserves. Instead, God was so unbelievably in love for us, in love with us, that he decides to respond to our sin with great mercy and great grace instead. Some call this the great exchange, right? This idea of Jesus and I trading places. That even though a sinner like me deserved to be punished and be separated from God and to receive endless punishment, God chooses to offer me endless mercy and grace instead. Even though I should be punished because of my performance, God desires to, to save me because of Christ's performance. That on the cross, Jesus decides that he was going to take on my sin upon himself. And then in exchange, he would give me his righteousness. Listen to how scripture describes this great exchange. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul says, for our sake, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin or to become sin, even though he knew no sin. God made Jesus to become sin, even though he knew no sin, so that in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Romans 5.8 says, but God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 1, 4 says, God chose us in Jesus before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So what's the Bible saying? That God decides that he's not going to judge us based on our performance but instead on the performance of his son. Jesus is sinless. Jesus is righteous. And though he had done nothing wrong, he had done nothing wrong, he willingly takes on my punishment. And in doing so, gives me and offers me life instead. And he was determined to do this 
before even the world was created. Think about that for a moment. Before you ever did anything, right or wrong, before you could ever even earn something like salvation, he decided that he knew I was going to be a sinner and that I would be in great need of a savior. And so he made that decision to do that. So in the end, what does Paul want to make sure that you and I never forget? That it was by grace that we were saved. That it was by grace that we were saved. That it's not my doing or your doing, it is the gift of God. That I didn't do anything to earn it, and I can't do a single thing to sustain it. It is absolutely a gift. And Paul is absolutely right. As we read those words, we remember that Paul is absolutely right. How could we read Ephesians chapter 2 and look at those verses and look at how God has responded to our sin and think that I did or you did anything to deserve it? How could we respond to what we have just read and to think that we have done anything to deserve it? The problem is, that's exactly what we do. That's what we do. As much as I know these truths in my mind, it doesn't always reflect in the way that I live. In this performance-driven world, grace just does not make much sense, right? I don't understand how I could be so freely given what I don't deserve. And when I don't believe in God's grace towards me, it affects me in many ways, but I want to take a look at three ways this morning. When I don't believe in God's grace towards me, it causes me to want to prove myself to other people. It causes me to want others to prove themselves to me. And it causes me to want to prove myself to God. It causes me to want to prove myself to other people. It causes me to want others to prove themselves to me. And it causes me to want to prove myself to God. So I want to share an example of each one of these things with you this morning. First, I want to prove myself to others. So like I said, right? I was born and raised in Philadelphia. I actually was, I grew up just a few blocks north of Seven Mile Road on Flagstaff Place, just a block away from here. And, and growing up, I loved this neighborhood. And in growing up, I had these two guys that I considered my best friends, right? Jerry and Shadi. Jerry and Shadi were my best friends because we did everything together. Some of the best times of my life were with them. I loved those guys, but to be honest, they were a bit of a blessing and a curse, okay, these friends of mine. They were a blessing because they, uh, they genuinely cared for me, right? We had a lot in common, we had so much fun together, and I learned a lot about life from them. But they were also a curse. They were a curse because they both had clear identities, and I didn't. They both had clear identities, and I didn't. So I'll tell you what I mean. So Jerry, we'll go with him first, right? Jerry is a genius. Jerry was a valedictorian of our elementary school. We didn't even have valedictorians until Jerry came into the school and they decided, you know, we, we need to do something with this kid, so let's make him valedictorian. So he was valedictorian of our elementary school. He went on to Central. He went to Central and he was valedictorian of Central High School. Then he went on to Penn and he graduated from Wharton one of the top business schools in the world. He graduates from Wharton, and then he decides that God's calling him to be a doctor instead. So he goes back to Penn, and he decides that he's gonna to go to Penn Med School, and he graduates from Penn Med School after Wharton. And 
to top it all off, he's the most humble guy you'll ever meet in your, in, in your life. You literally, if he was in this room right now, you asked him something about his life, he would talk like he never accomplished a single thing in his life. He's humble. Everybody loved Jerry, and everyone knew that he was a genius. And then there was Shaji, right? Shaji was just as smart, right? He always did well in school, and he was Central High School's senior class president, so people voted in him, him in because he was that popular and he was a good guy. And he also went to Penn, and he also became a doctor uh, and accomplished much in his life. But unlike Jerry and I, Shaji was also the cool one, right? So he taught us how to dress, what we should wear and shouldn't wear, and he taught us how we should comb our hair and when we should buzz cut it and versus the, the part, if you guys remember that. Um, and he was even able to convince me that, that sporting a mustache is actually not cool anymore. So I, I shaved it off after he, he talked to me about it. And all the girls loved him. They all loved him. And see, though everyone associated Jerry, Shaji, and Benny together, there was nothing in particular that stood out about me. Jerry was the genius. Shaji was smart and he was cool. But there wasn't anything particular about Benu that made me stand out. And I struggled with that for a long time. I struggled with that because I yearned for my own identity, something that I could be known by. And then one day, I got it. I was starting to be known as the religious guy, right? Yeah, that's really cool, right? Like, I'm the religious guy. But I was. I was the religious guy. I was leading Bible studies. Uh, I was leading worship. Uh, people used to come to me for advice about the Bible and their lives. And there was a part of me that thrived on it. I loved it. I depended on what others thought of me. And I continued living this life of trying to maintain this identity that I now had. I was often trying to impress people by what I said or what I did. I was often worried about how people thought about me or how they perceived me. I didn't take criticism well because I, I equated criticism to failure. And some of those things have stayed with me for all of my life, even in my work at Seven Mile Road. So last year, I was put into this role of community life leader at the church. And I've struggled, even my, during my time here, with questions like, you know, what, what if I don't have the perfect advice to give to our leaders? Or what if this September we get launched in these new groups and they flop? And the church is wondering, what in the world just happened? What will people think about me? Well, what if these training sessions are really just not that helpful at all for these leaders? And they see it as a waste of time. They see me as a waste of time. Why do we ever put this guy in this role? At times, I felt overwhelmed by this thought that I need to prove myself. And I thought that my, my identity and my self-worth is defined by my performance. Even though, even though I know that such approval is so deceiving. Because just like Ryan Howard, People's approval of you can change in an instant, right? 30 years of perfect performance can be destroyed in 30 seconds, right? All it takes is one bad instance. But even still, there's something about being approved that I desire. And in those times, God has been teaching me that it's because I don't believe in God's grace towards me 
I don't believe that God himself didn't base my worth and my identity on my performance, but that instead he gave me grace. And when I fail to believe that truth, I live in this never-ending pursuit of trying to impress people by my performance. But guess what, right? I'm not just the victim of needing approval, I'm, I'm the perpetrator as well, right? Because it's not just needing to prove myself to others that I struggle with, I also struggle with needing others to prove themselves to me. And my relationship with my wife is a really good example of that. I love my wife, I really do, right? I may not be the mushiest of people, but I can honestly say that I can't explain how my heart beats for her. She is one of the most caring and innocent people that I've ever met in my life. And you know, we've been dating and have been married now for nearly 10 years, and I can honestly say that I love her more today than I've ever loved her before. She's a wonderful mother and an amazing wife. And that's exactly why it's so crazy that I could so quickly turn on her in an instant. I could so quickly turn on my wife, even though our love for each other is so deep, especially when she doesn't meet my expectations. It's amazing that simple things, simple things, like coming home to a messy house when I expected it to be clean. Or not having dinner ready when I was really hoping for a hot meal. Things that are perfectly normal, things that are not a big deal at all, can, can cause me, even momentarily, to have a change in my affections towards her. It's crazy. Because she didn't perform according to my standards, I can see her differently, even if it's just for a moment or for days. And God is teaching me that in those times, it's because I don't remember the grace that God has shown me. Because he too had a standard that I didn't meet. He had a standard that I didn't meet. But instead of basing his affections for me based on my performance, his love for me is based on Christ's performance. And as a result, there's nothing that could cause God to love me anymore or any less than he already does. And as a, as a recipient of such grace, as someone who has received such grace in my life, he's asking me to love my wife as well, regardless of how she performs. And finally, you know, it's not just my relationship with other people that has been affected, but also my relationship with God, right? It's crazy how I can have read Ephesians 2 a million times and have people read it to me and, and have it being preached to and, and have, have even memorized some of these verses and know it by heart. But I can so easily live like I've never heard any of this stuff before. There are times in my life where I am convinced that God is out to get me. Like he's just waiting for me to slip up just one more time, right? That he's hoping that I really will do the very thing that I told him and I promised him that I will never do again. And at the moment that I do, that he's going to make my life hell. He's going to make, he's going to find ways for me to struggle. He's going to think of ways to punish me. And he's going to get me back. And when he does, it's going to be bad. I hate to admit it, but it's exactly how I feel at times. Like for example, on a week like this, when I know I'm going to be preaching, I'll make sure that I'm doing everything that I need to be doing. I'll make sure that I'll be reading the Bible, that I'm praying every single day. When I'm driving into work and driving back from work, I make sure that I don't listen to sports radio, I'll turn that off, and I'll pray instead. 
right? Because I want to make sure that I'm not doing anything that can cause God to be angry or upset with me. And I don't want to give him any reason to turn on me. Because what if he does get angry and decides to take it out on me while I'm preaching? Right? I mean, what if this sermon ends up awful and some of you are like, oh, maybe this is what's happening. But uh, you know, that would be a double win, right? Because God would be angry at me and everyone would be thinking I'm worthless. It's like a double win. Like, my life might as well just end at that point. It's ridiculous, but that's exactly how I think. I think that God is out to, to get me, to somehow return the favor. And all the while, I forget that everything that I've read in Ephesians is true. I forget that God doesn't love me based on my performance. I forget that God is actually for me, and he has been for me before the world was even created. I forget that God has been nothing but generous in his mercy and his grace towards me. I forget those things, and I live trying to prove myself towards God. You know, I could give you 30 more examples of what life looks like when I fail to believe in God's grace, but this is what I know. Trying to live a life based on performance is destructive, because the truth is, we'll never be good enough. We're bound to fail people. We'll never be able, as hard as we try, to meet God's standard. But this is the thing, unlike God, God, unlike people, God responds to our failures with love. Instead of punishment and rejection, he sends Jesus for our salvation. And he doesn't ask us to earn it. He doesn't come with any conditions. He says, stop working to earn my approval and place your faith in Jesus instead. Believe, believe this morning that Jesus' performance on the cross makes up for your inability to, to perform. Believe that Jesus' righteousness is given to you in exchange for your sinfulness. Believe that Jesus' affections for you never change, regardless of how you perform. And when we be begin to believe these truths, we'll also approach our works differently as well. Let's read this last verse together. Ephesians 2, 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. You see, God's grace doesn't lead us to forget good works, but to just do away with them somehow. As Paul says, we were created for good works. We were born again to do good works. We were made alive, though we were once dead, to do good works. Instead of our works, See, being seen as a way of gaining approval from God, we are now able to see it as a response to the approval that we have already received from God. Hear that. We can, we can approach our works differently, having believed these things that he has said, in that we don't do good works to try to gain approval from God. Instead, we respond to God's approval of us by doing good works. You see, in spite of our sin, God has shown us much grace, and so we don't need to perform any longer. And so that's, our, that's my prayer for us this morning. That's my prayer, that we would be free from a life of performance, and that instead we would believe that God is gracious, and so I don't need to prove myself.
even as I stand here before this crowd, and even as I preach these words, I need to be reminded of this truth. That you don't base me, you don't judge me based on my performance, but instead when you see me, you see your son. And you see what he has done. And though we live in this world of, of getting what you deserve, you have seen a different way to be fit. You have sent your son Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf, so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. How do we respond to that, Father? Why is it that we so quickly run to performance to try to gain approval from those who are around us, and even from you? When God, who is holy and righteous and sinless, when it is your opinion that matters the most, and when we believe in you, you have said that you are no longer held accountable for your sin, that I have removed those things, that I see you as righteous, I see you as my son, that we can so quickly forget those things and want people's approval more than yours, or somehow try to work to gain your approval even though you've already given us approval before we did a single thing. Father, we confess that our flesh is weak and we don't have the ability to believe these things. We don't have the ability to have our heart change. So I'm praying that your spirit, who is here and who is within those who are your children, that he would cause the change that, that we can't do in ourselves. If there is anyone here this morning, God, that, that has been living a life of performance, trying to gain from you some type of favor based on the things that they do, I pray that you would convict them so that they would be free and instead that they would trust in you. If there are those here this morning that have trusted in you and yet find themselves going back to performance, I ask again that they would be reminded of these great truths that we find in the gospel and no longer trust in themselves, but on you who is able to do all things and who has done everything for us. We can't do these things on our own, Jesus. So we ask that we would look to you. Please hear our prayer. Please hear our prayer. It's in Jesus' name we pray.